This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Veterans Benefits Administration had its disability claims backlog under control, and then the pandemic hit. It now stands at nearly 192,000 pending claims, and VA says it will likely get worse before it gets better. The department is relying on contractors to speed up work and bring the backlog down to pre-pandemic levels by the end of next year. But Congress worries VBA and its contractors might sacrifice speed for quality. We get more now from Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. The Veterans Benefit Administration says the disability claims inventory will probably peak later this summer. And yes, the pandemic is the main reason for the backlog. But VA is also starting to process claims for three new Agent Orange presumptive conditions, and a court order is forcing VA to re-adjudicate 62,000 Blue Water Navy claims. With that in mind, VA believes its backlog will peak in August and come down to 140,000 disability claims by the end of this year, and it should return to pre-pandemic levels of 100,000 by the end of 2022. John Tester is the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. I'm concerned, however, that next year isn't soon enough for disabled veterans weathering the storm of this pandemic. I'm also concerned that as VBA concentrates on speed, it risks sacrificing quality. Disabled veterans uh, must have confidence that their claims will be fairly and accurately decided. Last year's removal of the 48-hour review period is an example of when VBA, uh, when obsessed with speed, removed a veteran's ability to correct errors before a final decision was made. Now, look, everybody appreciates quickness, but forcing vets to appeal errors makes them wait longer, and quite frankly, it's a non-starter. VBA has made progress on the backlog in recent months. There were 210,000 disability claims in the backlog in March. That's the last time VA testified on the Hill on this topic. Thomas Murphy is the acting undersecretary for benefits at VA. We're looking to leverage some technology, scanning of records, presenting evidence in different ways. We've digitized our entire world, and we're doing well with that, but there's, there's ways we can do better with it. So leveraging through some contracting, scanning, and indexing files. And then the biggest lift that we can get today is tied back to getting veterans to show up and get examinations. We're today sitting on 58,000 claims where veterans have opted not to show up for safety reasons, and that's fine with us. The pandemic created two choke points within the disability claims process. The first was with compensation and pension exams. VA uses those exams to determine who's eligible for certain health and other benefits. VA shut down all in-person C&P exams for two months last March. VA contractors resumed some in-person exams last year. And Veterans Health Administration examiners are starting to do more of their own exams. Still, there are tens of thousands of veterans who have a C&P exam pending and haven't shown up for one yet. The National Archives and Records Administration was another choke point the VA helped resolve. Here's Murphy. They were running a straight Monday through Friday operation with just 10% people at that time. We had conversations with them, and they, instead of running straight shifts, they switched to shorter shifts, six hours apiece, and ran two shifts a day. And then they added Saturdays and Sundays on top of that. We made an offer to them to transfer overtime funds through the appropriate channels to make it all legal, to do whatever we could to help them have access to. And as a result, over a couple of months process, we went from that close to 100,000, down to the working inventory that we had in the middle of April. So the fastest way for a veteran today to get your evidence, your records, is come to us, 
go through your service officer or come to us directly and file a claim or get a records request. We're getting that turned around in just a couple of days. At the same time, we know that NARA is sitting on several hundred thousand uh, records requests that come through other sources, but we've been prioritized because we're taking care of veterans. Tester and committee ranking member Jerry Moran say they're impressed with the way VA helped the National Archives get records moving again. They're more skeptical, though, of VA's decision to rely on contractors to handle the vast majority of CNP exams. And the department says their contractors are a key part of their plans to bring the disability claims backlog down. Here's Murphy. Well, it's a bad thing to have our backlog double, but it's only doubled based on what we had. And that includes us shutting down for five months. We've got to the point here, and we've got a fairly quick recovery here. Our contractors are providing in excess of 45% more exams per day than we were, and VHA has more than doubled the capacity of the examinations they are doing. The point is this. Through leveraging what we have in VHA and tie that with our contractors, we're able to quickly recover from this and, and get all of our veterans through in, in a fairly expeditious manner. It can never be fast enough. I get that. But it's going fairly well, and and I'm seeing very large increases week over week in the number of examinations we're doing. Some in Congress are worried VA contractors aren't equipped to provide high-quality exams. And the Government Accountability Office says it's unclear what the long game is for VA's contracted medical examiners. VA doesn't have a system in place to ensure contractors have gone through the right training either. VBA says it constantly stays in touch with the Veterans Health Administration and communicates about the number of C&P exams it needs VA examiners to complete in-house. Elizabeth Curta is Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security at GAO. Here she is with Senator Tester. They do appear to coordinate on a day-to-day basis on you know what exams need to be done sort of right now. But what concerns us is, you know, as of this year to date, the contractors are now performing 90% of exams. And a lot of medical examiners we spoke to weren't aware that the capacity was shifting to mostly contractors. And so we just think that the coordination communication across the two areas, you know, could be greatly improved. VA, though, says veterans can expect the same quality with a contractor and a VHA examiner. It has at least three levels of quality checks to ensure its contractors are performing up to par. Here's Murphy. And the first one is the contractor themselves, because of the nature of the contract, if their quality goes down, there's a financial penalty that comes with that. So each one of them has a built-in in-house quality review that checks it before they give it to us. Second, they give it to us, and then we do, just like we do with the STAR process and our decisions, we do random sampling across all different lines, all types of exams, statistically valid sampling, and then that's the measure that we use to hold their accountability and then the third part of it is it sits in front of a rater, and then that's more of a practical application is, is the evaluation complete? Does it have everything I need in here to make a rating decision? And by the way, the answer to when it gets to the rater, it's 98 to 99% of the time they can make a rating decision off of that. So there's multiple layers inside the process that checks the quality piece. And when you're dealing with contractors, they're accountable to dollars. They, they understand our mission, they're driving, they're doing good things for veterans, but they understand I have to have quality because it will hit me financially if I don't. Nicole Grisco, Federal News Network. Check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. All I want for Christmas is a DWI. Yeah, said no one ever. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober, drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.